Welcome back to The Bulwark Goes to Hollywood. My name is Sonny Bunch. I'm culture editor uh, at The Bulwark, and I'm very pleased to be joined today by Jason Pargin, uh, who is the New York Times bestselling author of, jo- of the John Dies at the End series, uh, as well as the award-winning Zoe Ash novels. His previously published uh, work was under the pseudonym David Wong. I want to ask you about that in a minute, just because I, I, I think it's interesting that you have gone to your real name now on your books, uh, uh, and it, it is uh, which I understand has caused some issues with you in the... Uh, world of people trying to find the sequels, but we, we'll talk about that as well. Uh, his essays at Crack.com and other outlets have been enjoyed by tens of millions of readers around the world. Jason, thanks for being on the show today. So as I sit down to this, uh, on Twitter, trending is, I guess, Russia has sent like a nuclear, a train full of nuclear material of some kind toward Ukraine. And I just had the thought while you're reading the intro I'd better not joke about nuclear war because <laughs> if there's a nuclear war in between the time we record this and when it goes up, people are going to be mad. Well, they're going to be mad. It will, it, or it will make me have to edit it out, which is a hassle. Yeah, I would it'd, rather be a not. Big, it'd be inconvenient for somebody because it's. I'm just imagining. But then again, I don't think any kind of an outrage campaign, it wouldn't trend because I think the fact that there's a nuclear war would probably dominate the trending list. So maybe I don't need to worry about it. But either way, it would be tasteless, I I guess. But that's something because I can just imagine like civilization collapses. And then on top of that, I've got people yelling at me on Twitter and I'm having to craft some sort of an apology like that would just be one more thing. Well, as an author, it has to be kind of a pain in the ass for you to worry about nuclear war while you're trying to sell your book. Because I've been promoting it for the last six months. So imagine if now at the finish line, like finally, 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 because being an author is the the reason it's so hard on your mental health, among the other things, is that you are alone with this book for years. And then, you know, because of the way publishing works, you have to promote it for months and months in advance because it's all based on pre-orders these days. Um, And so the idea of, you know, you're living with it for a couple of for two years. And then you promote it for most of another year. And then like a few days before it comes out, it's out October 18th. I don't know what day this goes up. It doesn't matter. But a few days before it goes out, civilization ends. Nuclear war. And no, no good. one. And so now you're traveling across like the wasteland with the books and like a, a canvas bag, just trying to hand them out to to refugees. And it's it would be I would be the biggest victim in all that. Um, Why? Well, I- I'm imagining like a Book of Eli situation where you have to just through oral history, you have to like recount the tale of John and Amy I, uh, and Dave. I have no memory of any of the stuff I wrote. <laughs> That's going to be a problem. All right. So the new book is uh, if this book exists, you're in the wrong universe. It is the fourth book. Uh, in the uh, John Dies at the End series. Um, I I was just telling Jason that I reread all of them as prep for this, which is the most prep work that I've ever had to do for a podcast. It's like 1,600 pages of reading. It's like being in college again. I've been cramming uh, these books, which is... But it's it's fun because I enjoy them. I enjoy the series. I was very very excited when uh, Jason's publisher reached out to me and was like, hey, you guys follow each other on Twitter. Would you like to have him on your show? I was like, yes, I would. I would like to do that. That would be that would be fun. Uh, but before we start talking about the newest book, I want to talk about an old book that you wrote years ago and uh, are not here to promote. Uh, John dies at the end, which uh, 
I, I want to talk. I want to talk about the writing of that, but I also want to talk about how that book, uh, the how that book found fame. Really, is how did how did that book find the audience that allowed you to like turn this into a whole series? So one weird thing about the modern media environment and how fragmented it is, I have no concept whatsoever of what percentage of the people listening right now have heard of a movie or a book called John Dies at the End. It is, you know, for example, yesterday on Twitter, all day, trending all day, was that a celebrity named Dream did a face reveal. Do you know who that is? I only know who it is because I saw people talking about how they don't know who it is because I didn't know who it was. But yes, but he was dominating the trending list all day long. It turns out he's one of the most famous people on planet Earth. He is a Minecraft streamer, mm-hmm. I guess, who's popular with the kids. So we're in an era when among children, the most popular celebrities are people you and I don't know. So in my case, if it's I always have to think in terms of should would it be smarter to proceed as if, of course, everyone has seen John dies at the end and you're all curious to know that way, if someone is out there, hasn't seen it or read the book, they will feel stupid for having <laughs> not seen it. They'll feel like they're out of the loop. If you and I just proceed as, as if this is an extremely huh. famous book and that you should actually be ashamed if you if you haven't if you haven't read it. But here's here's the situation. Here's the background for both old and new people. Like this is a story because this is kind of inspirational. It's not extremely inspirational. It's kind of inspirational. But this is a book I wrote as a series of blog posts in the early 2000s over the course of about five years. This is before there was any kind of a fiction writing scene on the Internet. This is before the word blog existed. This is before social media this is a time when maybe about half of the households in the United States even had an internet connection. That's how long ago this was. So back then I had a, what would be called a blog today, but it was just a website because back then it's the only word we had for them, where I was just publishing my my writing. It was called Pointless Waste of Time, which was uh, a lot of websites back then had names like that. They were all emphasizing how bad they were. And I started writing every year on Halloween. I would switch from my normal stuff, which was just uh, I did, you know, movie reviews and parody stuff and essays and columns and whatever I felt like writing. But every year on Halloween, I would write a fiction story. And it was a story that each time had the same format, where it would start out seeming like a very typical horror story, a very typical horror setup. So a, a woman comes to these two guys and says, I think there's a ghost in my house. Will you come stay up with me and just see if it appears to see what you think it is? And then each time you start with that, and then each time it just goes further and further off the rails until by the end, it's so stupid that you'll you'll be angry that you started reading it. That was the idea. That was the, that was the format of the site. You, the article would start normal, and then it would just keep getting weirder, and then you, you would realize at the end, oh, this person has wasted my time. Well, this story went viral, uh, kind of. It gained its own audience. It got to the point where this kind of dominated my my year. Starting from about early summer on, writing that year's Halloween update became like a big deal on the site because people eagerly awaited the next uh, chapters and section of the story that I would come to call John Dies at the End as a joke that they were reading a serial that 
telling them this is how it's going to end, even though it, it didn't. So spoilers, it, spoilers for John dies at the end. Yeah. It, so it came to a natural conclusion around 2005 or so. And then I, uh, at the time I, people were asking me, they were like printing it out on their computer so they could read it like in a giant stack of paper. And so I was trying to find ways to like get printed copies to them. And I did like a print on demand thing through cafe press. And then there was an indie horror publisher called permuted press that came along and they said, we will. Do sell like print on demand copies of this if you want in this way it actually gets it up on amazon things like that but at no point did i work with like they had a copy editor look at it but at no point did i have an agent or an editor or any of that stuff they were just taking the print on demand version and it's like we'll publish a nicer edition so that people and we sold a couple thousand copies of this and Somehow, one of those copies wound up in the hands of a famous horror writer, director, producer named Don Coscarelli. He did the Phantasm series. He did a movie called Baba Hotep. A lot of people out there are fans of his. He gets hold of one of these copies and says, I want to buy the film rights to this. And this, among my loyal fans, this is an old story, but to a lot of you, are, I assume we're hearing it for the first time. And I, when he contacted me, I didn't answer his email because I thought it was like a like a phishing scam or something. If you're a writer, you get um you you would or at least I used to get you get messages from like vanity presses where they want you to pay thousands of dollars to sell your book for you. Like it's just purely so you can claim that you've got a book in print. So I thought it was something like that. It's gonna be like a guy saying, hey, I can get your book into the hands of Hollywood producers. Just give me some money. Um and I didn't answer it and he was persistent. And then actually finally got through to me. And again, I didn't have an agent. I didn't have anything. At the time, I was the writing was a hobby I was doing inside. I was working at an insurance company and not as like an agent or something. I, I was doing data entry in a cubicle. Like the claims would come in and I would type them in. That was my job. So this, not only do I sell the film rights, but it becomes a film, which is the this is the part that has spectacular long odds because it's fairly easy to sell the film rights to something. Having it turn into a movie or a show mm -hmm. is, um, but it did. And he, like he got Paul Giamatti on board um, as a producer and, and cast uh, several other famous people in the roles. Um, the movie debuted at Sundance in January, 2012. I flew out there, did a Q and A with the cast. Um, and from that point on, like that was the last those were the last normal days of, of my life. That would be the movie getting done would get me another fairly huge book deal. And so I wrote a sequel to it and that made the New York Times bestseller list. And that's that's how where we are today. Uh, the, the movie has a huge cult following, not from theatrical release, but because it has played on cable and Netflix and Hulu and Amazon Prime and steady rotation for all these years. Yeah, I mean, I, it's on Hulu right now if anybody wants to 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 go watch it. Uh, and like you said, it's by Don Coscarelli, who is a famous cult uh, d uh, horror director. Uh, folks who may have seen Bubba Hotep, the Bruce Campbell movie, will recognize him or Phantasm, of course. Um, I, uh, I, I'm curious when you say that that was the last normal day of your life. What is it like to be the author of a not not just a best-selling novel, but like a best-selling cult novel? Are you... Uh, you know, on the road to conventions all the time? Are you are you uh, fighting off uh, tourists at your home with a stick? What are what are 
you what are what are your days like when you're not you know sitting around writing? I don't do in person stuff. Um, I could use the pandemic as an excuse, but in reality, it just seems like a lot of trouble to not sell very many books. I, I, and I don't know. It's I think I'm the only author who doesn't like the idea of going out. Because I'm I'm the type of famous where once every five years somebody will uh, will stop me on the street and say, "Oh, you're because they somehow see my face in a video or on TikTok or or whatever." Um, and then like like twice in my life, people have shown up at my house uninvited. Fans have tracked down my address and shown up, but I'm not famous. But because of what I joked about at the beginning of this, of this podcast, I'm famous among a group of like, I don't know, 50,000 people. Like among those people, they would be extremely excited to meet me. And among the other eight point something billion people on earth, I could just, I could die and they wouldn't, they wouldn't care. I could die right at their feet and they would step right over me. So if you do, when you do like a book tour, and I've done appearances before, you can pack a room full of people where it's like in this room, I'm a celebrity because all these people, like they're lining up to talk to you and you can see they're like nervous to meet you. And then the moment you step out of that room and like go next door to the 7-Eleven, it's just nobody in there. Like you could just die. You could just fall over dead and they wouldn't, they would forget about you five minutes later. Um, unless you died in like a really entertaining way, then they would have a funny story to tell. So that thing of i think a lot of authors like to do the in-person stuff and do the tours and even if, it's, if it's, they're paying for it out of pocket because i think they love that connection to the fans and that like it, it rejuvenates them because it's like it, it's a reminder that oh th these people who read the books these are real people here's their faces and here's their excitement like like i i've got a genuine human connection with these people and i just don't feel that at all it that that emotion doesn't <laughs> It, it, it's just me being nervous about there's no way I'm as interesting in person as the the book is like whether the books are good or not. It's I in person am less good than whatever you think the books are. If you think the books are trash, well, I'm even worse than that person because the, the book, those sentences have been rewritten 20 times and it took me two years to get all that together. And if you just ask me to my face, about my opinion about something or, or uh, you know, uh, and you want me to speak about the book. Well, well that's not going to be as good because I just thought of it on the fly and I'm probably just trying to get out of the conversation. So <laughs> it always feels like, I don't know, it feels like it would be feeding my ego to go out and do like a signing or whatever, but I don't know that it would have any other benefit. And honestly, I don't, if I got famous, um, famous, famous, like, like Stephen King famous, I probably would have to withdraw from society. Like a thing where you have to live in a gated home to keep people from showing up. I probably couldn't do that. I, I, I don't, I've never aspired to that. Um, that's why I wrote under pseudonym for all these years. Specifically, I didn't want anyone associating the work with me. I wanted them to be fans of the work. I didn't care if they were fans of me. And I certainly didn't want this thing the way it operates in the social media age where it's all about you and your personality and, and you being an influencer and it's all about building a personal brand. I wanted the work to be a brand, not Jason Pargent, because I'm a, an objectively unremarkable person. 
I, you mentioned the pseudonym. I want to ask about that because it, it is interesting to me. I, to the extent that I literally looked up, I, I remember this happening a couple of years back. I literally looked up the wrong name trying to find the rest of the books in the series. I was like, wait, where where, where did David Wong's books go? They, they don't exist because it's Jason Pargin now. But the, uh, the, the, you do, you've, the name of the main character in John Dies at the End and the rest of these books is David Wong. And there's, there's kind of an interesting, I don't know. I, I'm curious from your perspective as, as the writer, as a writer, uh, how, how much of that is you trying to either identify with the character or to simply uh, disassociate entirely from the character. Like, this is the character in the book. He's writing it. This is him. This is a confessional thing, first-person thing. It's not me. Or is it the opposite? Well, it's you have to rewind about 25 years to start to get the origin to that because the character David Wong I created in like in high school for short stories. And he was always a white guy who has chosen this alias because he has enemies. He doesn't want them to find him. And he looked up and found out that that's the most common surname in the world. But he lives in a small Midwestern town that's like entirely white. It's like an incredibly misguided <laughs> alias. And that's the joke because David Wong, the man, is an idiot. He's, 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 he's smart in a way that's not useful at all. So when I started writing online and got my first internet connection, probably 1997, Something like that. Got an, a free AOL disk where it used yeah. to come with. Yeah, it's num- they had like the number of hours of internet on it. Yeah. Do the kids these days know that the internet used to I, come like per minute? You don't. You, well, or that it would come on a disk. Like you would have to put a disk yeah. in a thing, and then you would get the internet. an AOL floppy disk, and they would mail these to you. And it's like there's 120 hours of internet on here for free, and then then you have to pay. Um, so I got my first internet. Uh, account in the late 90s and again as someone who had written as a hobby but never for one millisecond ever contemplated that i would be a professional writer or that there was even a way to become a professional writer i I had gone to college for journalism but it was for for tv journalism um, and i worked at a local tv station after graduation but in terms of being a writer that wasn't again i didn't have an english degree i wasn't i had no connections on publishing or I had no agent or I had no, like to this day, I've never like sent a query letter to an agent or to an editor or done any of that stuff. I, I only sat down at the computer and realized, oh, my gosh, whatever I type here appears on the screen and it's and other people can read it like this is incredible. So but in that era, everyone, I mean, to my knowledge, basically 100 percent of the users used a pseudonym. Or or a handle, or because it was going back to the old chat room and using that mm, days. Sure, yeah. And most people had like one word that was like you know, Demon Sword six 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 or whatever, <laughs> the, you know, a band name or something. But it was a, no one posted as Bob Williamson unless they were like very old and confused or whatever. <laughs> so I was using the name David Wong because that was this character I had created. So it was literally a pop culture reference that. Only me and two friends would would get. That's how obnoxious I I was and continue <laughs> to be as a person. So when I start writing, I'm writing in first person as this fictional character, and every article was written. And he is the opposite of me in real life. Like David Wong is, he's uh, drunk, he's lazy, um, he's depressed, he's cynical. But he was a very funny character to 
write as. And he has like some criminal history, all these things that are not true, that are not true of me at all. So when it came time to write these stories, they were written first person as like David Wong speaking, like here's the thing that happened, the same as all the rest of it. But at no point, the idea that this is, you know, a guy speaking first person about his experiences, these are ridiculous cosmic horror stories. Like the things that happen in the story within the first paragraph, you know, this is not actually, he's not claiming this is his history, his family. This is something extremely stupid. Um, and so when it, when I published it as in the paper version, it just made sense to put his name on the cover. And at the time, it's like, because you read it and in the book, he says, he he tells the guy he's talking to, he's telling the story to, this is an alias, David Wong's not my real name. And the understanding is, you don't know who wrote this book and it doesn't matter. This is this fictional character is telling the story to a reporter in the book. And so his name is on the cover and that's as far as you're going to get. Now, w once I actually became a real, like I made a, did a book deal, then my real name is like on the flap, like the first edition of John Dice. And it says in the, about the author, David Wong, yeah. pseudonym, Jason Parson and, and, and so on. Um, and then when I got the job at Cracked, it's the other thing we haven't mentioned yet that at Cracked.com, I was the, the executive editor there for 13 years. Um, same deal, like, like on my profile there and on my social media. At that point, there's no hiding who I was. But in those early days, in the early 2000s, I did not want anyone, like especially at my job, like I didn't want anyone knowing I was writing these stories or that website, these incredibly crude jokes or these graphic scenes or any of this. I just didn't want them finding out. And I was perfectly happy. Like I was never jealous that all of the attention is going to this fictional character. I, I didn't want it. I, I, I still, I don't, the internet now where it's all about, you know, it, the, we're in the social media age where everything is being sold with your face, your voice, you know, I, if I could rewind time and everything is behind a username, I would do it. I don't, this isn't my, this isn't my thing. I don't, I don't like re relating to people this way. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's, I, I just imagine the, all of the would-be novelists out there hearing this play out and wanting to jump off a bridge. Like, oh my God, he just, he just wrote and somebody wanted his book. This is how, why can't, why can't this uh, happen to me? So congratulations for inspiring many uh, suicides. Uh, in this in this episode, I and let me acknowledge my good fortune because this is that movie deal. Like I'm writing books full time. That is a makes me a unicorn among authors. That only is possible because the it's not just that the movie got bought, not just the movie got made, but that the movie was good. And then after it percolated through DVD and and cable and streaming, it's just gained such a fan base. That it still, I mean, John Dies at the End is now available in, I don't know, like a dozen countries and like 10 languages. It's for sale all over the world. It's, I have, I have framed a framed photo of a bunch of the covers from other countries and uh, I don't have them all on there. They wouldn't fit. Um, so that was an extreme stroke of, of good fortune. And also, you know, it was uh, Don believing me and, and all that. So when other people ask me, well, how did you do it? So much of my advice is useless because all other authors are like, well, you know, here's, here's how you get the attention of an agent and, and here's how you get the attention of an editor. It's like, 
for me, it was all backward. I had to go find an agent because Macmillan and there, it was an imprint, Macmillan, St. Martin's Press. They came to me saying, hey, we saw you sold the film rights to this book. We we would like to do a hardcover run. Do you have an agent? I was like, no. Do you know any agents? <laughs> and so I had to go call an agent. And like they like gave me the name. Like this guy represents a bunch of writers we work with. And um, say, hey, I've got a book deal apparently, but I need somebody to do the paperwork. Um, and then it, so. And then and then for there now, again. I also was working like 100 hours a week because I had a full-time job and then I had a part-time job and then I was running my blog and writing these stories as my third thing, trying to make an income. Like Because writing on the internet has never been profitable, presumably never will be. Um, the, the blog and writing for the first five years, again, I was giving the story away for free. There were banner ads that barely covered the cost of like the hosting fees. So I... If I wanted to emphasize the hard work aspect, I would say, well, I, I had you know, a full-time job at an insurance company, and then I had a, a night, part-time job at night at another office, and then I was on weekends and in evenings, I was writing and trying to, to, to hone my, my craft, and I was sleeping like five, five hours a night, and I had no friends, and that it was the hard work that made this happen. But the truth is, it was... It was both. The hard work is kind of like a baseline that's assumed. And then of the people who are working hard, a certain number of those will meet the right person and, and become successful. So I, working the exact same amount of hours or whatever, I fully get that if I had to replay this 100 times, like 99 times, it still wouldn't play out this way. Because again, yeah. maybe there's another reality where he stumbles across the book and decides not to buy the rights. Or... He buys the rights, but then instead of doing this, he decides to do, you know, a Bubba Hotep sequel instead or some other project, which is what happens with most movies that get bought or most TV shows that get optioned is that they just never get, they never come to fruition. Um, everything just fell, fell into place, including me having an internet connection and getting in on the ground floor of blogging that I was blogging before they had a word for blogging. I was one of the early writers on the internet. Well, who knows how much success I would have had if I had been born 15 years later and came into a scene that was already crowded. Like I, I came into the internet when sometimes you would come on and just look for stuff and be like, oh, there's no new stuff on the internet today. I guess I'll watch TV. Yeah. Like that's, there was, it, nobody was using it. This, this was an era yeah. when you could go to McDonald's.com or Nike.com and it was like some random yokel had the website because companies hadn't bought those domains because nobody at McDonald's knew what the internet was yet. Like that's how early this was when I was on there, you know, just out of, out of college. It was the wild west. Yeah. No, the early mover phenomenon is, uh, I mean, I, I remember those days. I remember going to websites that I won't, I won't name now, uh, because God only knows how embarrassing they are, but being like, ah, God, there hasn't been an update in a month. Why haven't I, why isn't there any new stuff here? I guess I'll go watch TV. As you said, uh, the, there's, um, there's uh, in in the foreword of the I think most recent edition of the book is full of this book is full of spiders, which is the uh, second book in the in the John Dies at the End series. You mention the difference between you know kind of compiling a series of blog posts into a novel and sitting down to actually write it. Um, and I I want to get your uh, just your 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 look back at that and kind of how different that was for you as a writer uh, in terms of your process and. 
all that stuff. Well, that was the first time I actually sat down to write a book because again, John Dies at the End was my writing school. And by the way, for young writers out there, I still think to this day, I mean, now I probably don't need to say this because I think every young person gets their start doing like fanfic, stuff like that, which I fully support. You know, there's entire communities of, of, of you know, whether you're doing erotic fan fiction or, or horror or whatever. Um, there's all sorts of outlets. There's entire scenes now where people hang out and there's ways to, for your stuff to get traction and all that. But writing online and seeing the feedback like that's your writing school. This is what wouldn't have been available to somebody 50 years ago or 40 years ago or, or even um, so posting stuff a bit at a time and not just seeing the feedback, um, but seeing where people stopped reading it, seeing what page they left off on. Like I had data. You know, writers didn't used to have data. It used to be you sat alone and wrote for five years and sent it off to a publisher and they sent it back. Yeah, we're not. We're going to pass. And that was it. You know, the, the only way you could get feedback was to show it to your friends and they're not going to read it. They're going to say, oh, it was really good. And, you know, like you can't ask a friend to read 150,000 words of, of your manifesto. Well, I had this miracle of like, because I had a message board on my website because it had there's free software you can install and people can can shout uh, slurs at you. But I could post every Halloween and you'd see people and I'd post a section of time and I could look at the data and I could see where people were getting bored. And I just, that was my novel writing school. This was the first long form story I'd written in my life. It, it, you know, the, this, the first big long story I ever wrote became the movie and a best-selling book series. That's how, again, how unusual I am. So then after, you know, it, it was working out so that around when the movie was going to come out is when the second book would come out under the deal I signed to write a sequel. Um, and that was... Uh, that was terrifying. I had never sat down with the blank page to write a, a story before, a, a novel before. And so I that was where all of the processes I have now, um, like I outlined extensively in advance. A lot of authors don't do that. A lot of authors say it's a terrible idea, including the most successful authors out there all say don't do it. Um, but I do. And that was that, that started with this book is full of spiders, me sitting down and saying, well, I can't write this. I can't write the beginning of this unless I know the ending. And I can't write, like, unless I know where this character's arc is going, um, I can't write I can't write the starting point. I can't introduce them without knowing how they're going to die. So I outlined the whole thing in advance, and that gave me, like, the comfort to sit down and because now I wasn't scared of the blank page anymore, which is debilitating to a lot of authors, like just looking at a blank screen and you have to, it's like, where do you start? Well, I had this outline. It's like, well, I, I got to start with some of this stuff. It's like having a recipe. Um, other authors say it makes the your work too, uh, like, I don't know, like too organized or too clockwork or whatever. It's not, or it's not organic enough. But I, 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 I don't, I can't imagine writing any other way. The way they write, the way Stephen King writes, the way George R. R. Martin writes, where it's like, I'm going to create these characters. I'm going to put them in a room. And I'm going to just see what they do, see what they say to each other. Let them surprise me. And like, no, I'm, I'm on a deadline. I don't, <laughs> I don't have time. <laughs> I don't have time to be surprised uh, by this character that, that I assumed was going to be there through the end of the story. It's like, oh, that character surprised me by committing suicide. Um I admire writers that can do that. They are probably just way better writers than I am. I have to outline. But all of that, I I only learned 
by doing it and uh and then you know and then just wrote the the method that i have now where i will write a bad paragraph and just revise 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 until i'm happy with it and write you know, like including like when i finish the book like i will rewrite the beginning the opening chapter right up until i send it off because it's not a linear process i'll, I'll circle back and mm -hmm. you know um, and adjust or or whatever, um, but it's it's just writing and then rewriting. Just, I just edited it to uh, to death. Do you uh, if it, when you have the structure kind of laid out, do you ever skip ahead in the story if you get stuck somewhere? I mean, I'm or is it just straight through? Um, I mean, I write straight through as much as I can. But I the whole advantage of having an outline is if you get bored with one part and you are like eager to go write this action scene later, you can just go write that scene. And then if when you circle back, if something has changed a little bit or the, the tone is a little bit different when you've reached it, you can always adjust it. But no, I, I totally write out of order. And this is why, again, this is where I'm a big believer that technology kind of shapes your brain. Because I was raised on word processors. I've never written anything on a typewriter in my life. That's sort of like in high school or you know, we had a class on, on using a typewriter. And for the kids out there don't know what a typewriter is, probably they've seen them in old movies. But the idea is the authors, let me put it this way, it was extremely difficult to revise on a typewriter. So authors that used to write everything typewritten, that is all authors who were not writing longhand, it almost had to be a more linear process because mm -hmm. the sheer yeah. labor and cost of retyping, pulling out the sheet and crossing out through it and then typing a new sheet. Whereas if you look at the books I've got in progress, um, like the one I've just started right now, it's just this, the word doc is just this patchwork of notes and paragraphs and lines and jokes and observations and little interesting little bits of narrations that I've thought of stuff from that I've kept notes on and I'm just going to copy and paste and move stuff around and up till the very very end I'll decide oh this this conversation really should be moved much earlier and it's just it I think when you're writing in ways where it's much more laborious to undo it I think a lot of the writers who you see becoming too adverse adverse to um deleting or or getting rid of scenes is because it's so much actual labor to redo it and to get rid of it whereas in the word processor era somebody raised on word processors like me it's all ephemeral it's just real easy just copy paste cut you know delete or or delete a whole section and save it in another doc and then if i decide yeah. six months later I, I want it back in i just grab it throw it back in very easy um, and it takes what would have taken them hours takes me half a second. Well, my entire creative process was shaped by that technology, being able to move stuff around. And I, I think I would, if I had been born a hundred, hundred years earlier, one, I clearly would never have been a published author because how would that even have worked? But, but I think if I try to write uh, on a typewriter, I think you would see me working in a more linear fashion. And I would be really interesting to see people who are just starting writing now, you know, in their, their 19 or 20 or just out of high school, somebody who's raised on phones, I'd be interested to see how they write. If, for example, yeah. when I worked at Cracked, a lot of our young writers or young columnists would compose their column on their phones. They would write a two thousand word column, including doing the research and everything. They would do it all on their phone. Man, 
uh, as a as a fellow word processor person, that is a terrifying prospect. Do you do you use do you just use Microsoft Word? Do you use Scrivener? Like what do, do you use a specific program? I just use Word, not for any good reason, but just because every time somebody's trying to explain to me something like Scrivener or any of these other mm. uh, software that help you like write or organize your thoughts, it just seems. Uh, like it's adding steps but uh, again if th those may be great i'm not criticizing them it's just i've never in using word i've never become frustrated with um being able to organize my ideas or whatever because it, it's for me it's very easy to just create a separate word doc called outline another word doc called notes and then if there's a, a chapter or a section that i've cut and i think i want to hold just put it into another word doc called you know that chapter 16 action scene and then I just, I, it's easy enough to grab it. But I assume those those softwares makes it much more, just easier to move your ideas around and stuff like that. But I've just got the process down. It's the same thing. I'm, I'm using like Word 2010. And it's the same thing. Microsoft trying to like sell me Word 365. Yeah. It's like, well, what's better about it? It's like, well, uh, it's you've got to create an account. And it's like, see, it sounds like you're, it sounds like this is harder. Because yeah. if I'm just typing text, uh, it already does. It's like, well, you can insert video right in the middle of your words. It's like, well, okay, but I'm not, they're not going to, the, the publisher's not going to like that. Uh, so no. And I guess I'm, this is a side of me becoming old. Um, because again, I don't like, I don't want to upgrade my phone because I'm afraid it'll be, it'll be too yeah. different. Well, I just I just pulled up my version of Word, and I every time I open it, I, it's version it's Microsoft Word sixteen for the record. Uh, every time I open it, there, there's now a warning. It's like this is secure. We're not updating the security on this anymore. Somebody's going to hack your computer and steal all your stuff if you don't upgrade to the new Microsoft Word. I'm like that doesn't make me want to get another version of Word. Hearing all this, uh, yeah, and and I think they want to go to a subscription model where you just pay like a monthly fee forever, so you pay infinite money for yeah. for Word. And it's like, okay, but but the, the book book technology has not advanced that much. So I'm somehow able to still write a book on Word. And in fact, um, I think George R. R. Martin still uses like an MS-DOS uh, word, yeah. word processor because that's what he learned on. And like me, he's afraid that updating would slow him down because this is what this is what you're faster on. Let me let me ask you. You mentioned something interesting uh, about pre-sales on if this book exists, you're in the wrong universe. Again, I just want to I want to pitch it for Jason here so he doesn't have to. Uh, the The whole series is very good. You should read it. It's like it's a bit like Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy with some cosmic horror thrown in, uh, some Stephen King, whatever. Uh, but it's it's there. It's an incredibly entertaining series of books. Uh, again, the fourth one is coming out uh, in in a, a week or two. Here, it's if this book exists, you're in the wrong universe. But you had mentioned pre-sales. You had mentioned pre-sales, and uh, you had also talked a little bit about having more data now. And you you had mentioned that normal like hardcover sales are about tracking to where you were expecting, but ebook sales are down, uh, and Audible uh, sales aren't up yet. So it's it's hard to track that. What if, what is your um, what what are you seeing in the the book industry right now, or at least with with regard to your sales? I mean, I I assume that ebook sales are down because people are commuting less, right? Because of COVID or whatever. I but I don't know. I'm curious what your what your take on that is. The theory we have right now is that people who used to read ebooks have migrated to audiobooks because mm -hmm. audio ex is exploding, and the reason for that is obvious which is podcast it's just another type of podcast content to the kids these days 
So the idea of if on your phone in your app, you've either got a podcast or you can listen to this book. That and, and you know, let's be frank. If I wanted when I wanted to know more about World War One, I, I didn't buy a book on the subject. I listened to Dan Carlin's podcast, Blueprint for Armageddon. Like that was the book quote, like it's 25 hours long. That was the mm-hmm. book, quote unquote, I read on World War One was, was a podcast. Now, if I was at a party with other smart people, which I never am, I would say I read a book because I it, I ingested the same amount of information. But I, I think among among the youth today. It's the same category of content. So I suspect that's what's happened is a lot of the tech savvy people who have Kindles now, they just drop the audiobook on their phone and you can listen to it in your car, on the treadmill, while mowing your lawn or while, uh, you know, all the things you can't do, you know, you can't drive your car while reading a Kindle yet. Um, uh, So, but you can listen to a, a book in your car. So if you've got a commute, it's just very easy. So I think that's what's happened. I was very surprised because I, again, like a lot of people thought that by 2022, you know, paper books would have gone the way of uh, whatever, the telegram, um, and that it would all be ebooks now. And what we've seen is that, that e- the ebook adoption completely flattened out. It has now started to drop a little bit, but paper books, I've, I've, I've sold in advance. I have more uh, hardcover pre-orders of this book, book four, than of than I had of book three at the start. Then, by the way, you can come in at any. These are episodic. You can start with any any book. They're all equally confu- confusing. We, I, I appreciate <laughs> that the host of this show read four hundred thousand words of text before in prep for talking about book four. We are not asking any of you to do that. Now you can. I I make more money if you do. Um, and to be perfectly frank, if you want an entry into the universe and want to understand the tone, go watch the movie for free on Hulu or whatever device you've got, um, or go to a used bookstore and John Dye's standing probably get for 99 cents there. Um, but I mean, I, I would prefer you buy the new extremely expensive one, but I understand that uh, I, I'm not a fan of people telling me, oh, you've got it, especially with like fantasy. I don't read that much fantasy. People saying, oh, you've, th- this fantasy series is one you're going to love. There's 37 books. <laughs> you do need to start. You do need to start with the first one. Uh, and it's like, buddy, there's there are there are videos on TikTok that I decided were too long for me to sit through. I I realize I'm here asking people to buy a full-length novel, but in this information environment, for me to go and tell people you have to read the three previous books to enjoy this one, no, this is not this is not a yeah. song of ice and fire situation where one book leads in a cliffhanger. And you're waiting for the next one to come out to find out who died or whatever. No, they're complete stories, starring the same characters, like a you know like a Sherlock Holmes novel. It's just a new they've got a new case they have to tackle. Yeah, uh, can co-sign on that. Uh, if you if you go watch the the movie on Hulu, you'll get the basics with the the soy sauce, the drug that uh, you know expands the mysteries of the universe, uh, and that'll that'll do you okay. But you should definitely look again. I uh, I don't I don't talk to a lot of novelists on here because this is a Hollywood show, and this is why I've asked a lot about the movie uh, that, that kind of spawned this whole thing. Um, but I I do really uh, enjoy this series of books. People should check it out let me ask do you are, are, are is there any work on a john dies at the end sequel i mean i you know we have an endless maw of streaming content you know this book is full of spiders could easily be a 10-hour you know netflix series or or something of that sort uh do you think there's any chance of that happening here in the 
the near term? I have to be careful. If you can talk about it. I have to be careful it, how maybe. I phrase it because it's, uh, for example, both, you know, my other book series, the Zoe Ash novels, the science fiction series, like we we sold the the TV rights to that before the first book was even out. And they the same production company still has the TV rights. Um, and the show is in development for it. But that doesn't, the term in development doesn't mean anything until they spend money to make a pilot. So, like, usually it means, like, people have been brought on board, there's writers, or there, there's a showrunner, or whatever, but it doesn't, it, you, what people want to know is, when is this going to be in front of my face so I can see it? And the answer, and the answer is that most shows that, are, that get to, to be in development don't become shows. That's just mm-hmm. the nature of Hollywood. There's a filtering process of it's once you're at a level where you've had a best-selling book, it's not hard to get a meeting about your books because those meetings don't cost anything. And mm-hmm. it doesn't cost them anything at the meeting to say, oh, this is great. This is great. It's so unique. Oh, gosh, this is so great. And it's similar to other stuff that's out there right now, like Rick and Morty. It's got that tone of it's like smart, but it's got really crude humor. And, you know, it's violent, but it's also thoughtful. Blah, blah, blah. It doesn't cost them anything to say that. What, what costs them something is to actually fund a pilot or a, C, a direct-to-series show for streaming. And until you've reached that point, there's kind of no point in talking about the meetings you've had because it just doesn't if someone if someone like a beat reporter cared enough about me to do a headline on uh, some entertainment site that's like you know jason says meetings have been had about uh a john diastine say well it's like well guess what there's been meetings about every single book that's been written every property every video game it just doesn't what people want to know is when does it come out so I can watch it. Right. And there's not a show in production right now. But logically, the way the environment has changed since 2012, like the collapse of DVD, the rise of streaming, it it you don't have to be an expert to know that it it would would be more common to pitch it as a streaming service to one of the 800 streaming services than to be talking about doing, you know, doing another feature film. It's just this is where stuff show, goes. It would it would make more sense to go yeah. to Netflix and say, hey, it's kind of like Stranger Things, except it's profane and everybody is drunk. And um, but nobody nobody has has taken it that final step yet. Now, I could be speaking out of turn. It's possible that last week they had a meeting and somebody greenlit something. <laughs> and then I'm I'm ruining it by. Um, but no, there's not, there's not anything on the schedule to come out. I personally believe that someday it will be, it will be something just because at the rate, uh, streaming services are being invented, there's just not enough content for them. At some point, somebody has to come along and say, we want to, we want to do a John Dice theme series or movie or, or something. Yeah. Uh, I think that's a safe. I think that is a safe bet. Uh, that was uh, that was everything I wanted to ask. Um, I always like to close these interviews by asking if there's anything I should have asked. If you think there's anything people should know about uh, the new book, the book industry in general, cult movies, uh, crack.com, whatever. Uh, I if if there's anything if there's anything you think folks should know about, what what did I fail to ask? I mean, crack could be because some of the people listening uh, like statistically probably are more likely to have 
been a fan during the crack.com years just because of who you are and who your who your fan base is your audience is um but i was the i was the executive editor there um from about 2007 till just to right before the pandemic to 2020. so during what some people regard as the the big years when it had a, a, a kind of a giant audience i was one of the head guys there um, and then left, and that was one of the publications that suffered mightily under the way um, just the information ecosystem changed. This is, I don't know if people realize this, the average person doesn't know, but in like around 2017, Facebook threw a switch and just obliterated the digital publishing industry. This is why College Humor had to get rid of their entire staff. This is why Funny or Die went out of business. This is why. Uh, just run down the chai. I've had to lay off most people. This yeah. is why BuzzFeed and Huffington Post laid off hundreds and hundreds of people. Um, that because the traffic used to flow through Facebook, and then Facebook decided uh, they just just didn't want to do that anymore. So they flipped a switch and just killed the entire industry. Um, and so Cracked wound up laying off like eighty percent of the staff and and closing the office in in twenty seventeen. And I hung on for a couple of years after that. I guess. That's a whole other conversation because I don't know that the average person realizes the degree to which the information that reaches them and the articles that reach them are governed by these algorithms. Everybody who works in the industry knows because you have to know because you are totally at the mercy of this, that in between you and your audience is going to be some sort of a platform um, and that you're trying to re whether you're trying to use Twitter to reach your audience or use Substack, or use YouTube, or use any TikTok, any of them. I'm using all of them. Um, you, it's never a case of well, I'm going to build up my fan base. I'll put out good content. It's not just that. You are trying to work an algorithm that is tuned to to feed the interest of that platform, not the audience, not the creators, just that platform. And there's a unique kind of mental torture that comes with that <laughs> because you can put your heart and soul into something and put it out there and see, and this happened to crank all the time. You can work really, really hard, put tons of money and tons of effort into editing or writing a piece and put it out there and it just dies. It just dies. It, it's read by, you know, a, a few thousand people on a site that, you know, once upon a time, you know, it cracked. We had at our height, 25 million unique readers, watchers, listeners, whatever. Or that's how big our audience was. And it would just die. And then the next day or, or like three days later, you would try posting it again and it would take off like a rocket. The exact piece of content, the exact same thumbnail, title, authors, subject matter, time of day because the Facebook algorithm decided to push it out to its users. And the few days before it, it, it just chose not to, it's a random number generator and it's rand randomized so that no company or individual can manipulate it. So they, one, they don't release how it works and two, it's, it's got a, an element of randomness because otherwise you would, you would build a piece of software that learns how to game it. Um, so that's why you see people like trying to use hashtags, things like that. You see it everywhere, Instagram, everywhere. Um, but we are in an information ecosystem now where there are people you were fans of <laughs> years ago who you think quit the industry and they didn't. 
they're still making stuff. The platforms just aren't showing it to you because you're following that person on Twitter or on Facebook or whatever. But be, like on Twitter now, it wants to default you to the home tab, which is where we Twitter choose what tweets you see. Yeah. And their home and their yeah. algorithm decided that this person is whatever problematic or they just don't like their their content or they don't get enough engagement or they don't post enough photos or enough. for example instagram recently decided they wanted to pivot to video so all of these creators that were doing big business on instagram posting photos suddenly they found their audience went away and the reason i bring this up and the reason it's relevant because i'm not asking anybody to feel sorry for people who work in you know modern internet content because we're not an admirable bunch, it's it's fine. But you have to understand, the kids today, the teenagers, all the teenage girls on TikTok, they are subject to the same algorithms, only their social capital is tied to it, like their reputations, their popularity as human beings. So you have right now, some 13 year old who uploaded a video of herself dancing to a song to TikTok, and she's used to getting like 250 views and this one only got 25. And she is having an anxiety breakdown saying, why did everybody hate me? Why did everybody hate me? Did I make everybody mad? It's like, no, I know because I've been in this business for, for 20 plus years that you just were the victim of an algorithm that decided they didn't want to push that song that day. It's not a song isn't viral anymore. So we're going to suppress your video. So what, while no one has to feel sorry for me for like all my friends losing their jobs because of an algorithm change, you have to understand the mental health of our children <laughs> hangs on these same inscrutable yeah. algorithms. So like I had to join TikTok two months ago because if, as an author, it turns out you have to be on TikTok. That's yeah, where sure. that's where the book reviewers are. For whatever reason, it has migrated to TikTok. And that's fine. And me being somebody who's, you know, in my mid to late forties, yes, it is sad that I'm trying to learn how to use TikTok. I'm, it, it, it's a shameful thing for a man to admit that I'm coming at it from a, as a fully formed adult and it drives me crazy. And I'm someone coming in who's been through many, many cycles of internet stuff. You know, I'm a professional, I'm getting paid. The idea that you have all these kids out there who have no context for this and they they're like deriving their self-worth from these imaginary Internet points. But these points are being doled out by a corporation that's purely just this cold engagement addiction machine. It's kind of scary to me um, that but that's a subject I, I'm not trying to fear monger about it, but it's something I could talk about at length if we had a whole other hour. Well well, I I would I would be happy to have that conversation, and it and it is a running undercurrent through the uh, the John dies at the end books. I mean, there's there's a lot of interactions, intermediation with the world through social media. Uh, that's how. I mean, I, I whatever you get, you read the books for yourself, and you you'll see it. You'll you'll see it pop up. Um, and there's one repeated idea in the first and second books about the. Um, the the idea of video games as being introduced by this you know kind of malevolent. Uh, interdimensional force as a way to, you know, kind of desensitize people and, and train them to uh, be evil to each other, which I find, again, interesting. It could be a whole nother hour worth of discussion, but we are running out of time. I'm sure you have more shows to do, more more books to sell. 
so I, I won't keep you here any longer. Thank you so much for doing the show, Jason. I really appreciate it. And again, uh, name of the book is If This Book Exists, You're in the Wrong Universe. Go check it out. It has a big lime uh, green, neon green cover. Very easy to spot if they have it in a prominent place in your bookstore. If they don't have it in a prominent place, stop shopping there. It, that's, <laughs> it's shameful. They don't deserve your business. They should, they should have it face, face out on a shelf near the door. They probably yes, won't. Absolutely. But find find the bookstore that does and then reward them with your business. Yes, that is a, that's a good idea. Uh, my name is Sonny Bunch. I am the culture editor at The Bulwark, uh, and I will be back next week with another episode of The Bulwark Goes Hollywood. We'll see you guys then. Mm-hmm.